It's Sunday, November 4th, 2018, and we are less than 36 hours away from polls opening for the 2018 midterm elections. This is the Political Abstract, episode number seven. Welcome back to the conversation. And um, in just over a day, America will head to the polls to decide which parties will control the Senate and the House of Representatives, as well as um, many governor's mansions throughout the nation. And um, don't forget about your local races as well. So I uh, believe there's going to be over a thousand uh, state legislative races decided. So make sure to check your ballots, familiarize yourself with the races and uh, get your information in now so that you can make an informed decision on Tuesday. But we have arrived after uh, two years of analyzing and prognosticating and speculating uh, we have just about arrived to Election Day. It is the day after tomorrow, and this is our prediction showcase. And uh, we're going to go through this in a couple different ways. So it's really easy for me to hop on um, either on Facebook or here on the podcast and tell you exactly what I'm predicting. But we're not going to do that because the goal of the political abstract is to help spread um, smart, poignant information about politics so we're going to do this a couple different ways. Um, I'm going to give you my overview in terms of uh, projections, a wide range of them, and um, talk about what I feel each party needs to do to win in both the House and the Senate. And um, then, because it's no fun without actually um, without actually making picks, um, we are going to do um, pickums for the Senate and the House. And I'm going to give you my exact numbers, and um, we'll see how those hold up after Tuesday. But um, definitely, if you're listening to this, jump over to the page. I'm going to be posting something uh, tomorrow morning. And I want to hear from you guys as well what your predictions are. Uh, are the polls correct, or do you think we're going to be in for a surprise on Tuesday? But let's get things kicked off in the house. And uh, just a quick overview with where we're at, bigger picture. Um, the Real Clear Politics average shows the Democrats with a seven-point advantage on the generic ballot. That's actually come in by about half a point um, in the last uh, 48 hours or so. 538 has a generic ballot average as well, which I like to look at. Um, I think they're both useful. Uh, 538, they actually provide a weighted average, so they look at the historical accuracy of the polls. They weight them based on their historic leans. Some polls lean Republican, some lean Democratic, and um, 538 accounts for all of that. They have the average at Democrats with a 8.3% advantage. Um, that's been more or less flat for the last week or so. So as we head into um, the election, uh, the thing to remember about these averages is that the seven-point advantage for Democrats or 8.3-point advantage for Democrats doesn't necessarily tell the whole story because, remember, Democrats are clustered in large cities. So um, if a Democratic candidate wins in Los Angeles County by 60 points instead of 50 points, uh, that's going to affect the averages, but it doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. But as these averages move, um, that does mean that people are actually coming on board or changing their mind. And um, at the ground level, when we may have 30 to 40 house races that are going to decide by a point or two, any movement could be significant. I tend to think that for every point that the averages move, we're talking about a potential swing of 
five races. So if you want to think about it this way, there's a big difference between uh, Democrats winning by six points with the national vote on Tuesday versus eight points, because that could be 10 seats. It could be the difference between them um, taking control of the House or Republicans retaining it. Most of the expert analysis that I've read seems to agree that um, Democrats need to be around a six-point advantage, maybe a little bit less than that in order to take back the House. So um, if you work off of that at seven, um, we're in a pretty competitive House race where just a minor polling error could um, be the difference between Republicans uh, taking control of the House or uh, Republicans maintaining control of the House or possibly losing it. Um, if you start to go up to eight and nine points, then you're in the territory where you're talking about Democratic gains of 35 to 40 seats, possibly more. So um, when those numbers start to come in and we start to get exit polls from around the country, keep an eye on that national number because it is going to be significant. It's going to tell part of the story. And um, again, if we're in the seven point range, a little bit under that and um, Republicans overperform, um, then it could be much closer than um, than what the experts are calling for. Um, but my projection for election night would be for Democrats to win from anywhere between 6.5 points and 9. Um, it really it depends on the makeup of the electorate at this point and who shows up. So if Democrats um, are highly energized and uh, college-educated women come to the polls in large percentages and young people come to the polls in large percentages and minorities do – and if there's a fall off with um, white voters without a college degree that tends to be a Republican or Trump leaning group, then we could end up near that nine or 10 point of range. But where this gets tricky is remember, historically, the turnout for midterm elections is only around 35% or so. So there tends to be a bell curve effect where if you go from 35 to 38, the party with more enthusiasm, let's call that the Democrats, even though there's a lot of enthusiasm on both sides, that could be good news for the Democrats. But then if you go to a, another level, let's say you go to 40%, that could just be more Republicans turning out and it could offset the Democratic enthusiasm. Then if you go to 42%, maybe that's an advantage for Democrats and et cetera. So the the number of turnout, it's going to be huge. I, I think it's going to be over 40%, which um, could be a modern-day record for midterm election. Uh, we'll see how much higher than that it actually ends up being. But that number itself is not going to tell you a lot. Each side is going to spin that to their advantage in terms of enthusiasm. But the fact is, all of the polls show that there's enormous enthusiasm on both sides. So I think we're going to get a huge turnout, and it's just going to be around the margins in those demographic groups is one group slightly more enthusiastic and does that translate into uh, turnout? And um, is there some quirk in the electorate where we see um, the national vote total go in one direction or another? But uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, in terms of projections for the House as a whole, I'm projecting the Democrats to pick up 30 to 40 seats. That's the same as what I had yesterday. Of course, the Democrats need a net pickup of 23 seats to regain control of the House. So that would put them at an 8 to 18 seat majority. And that's really important because one thing I've really been trying to drive home is that this is not a zero-sum game. So there's a big difference between a very weak majority where you may only have a, a 5 to 10 seat advantage and one where you have 20 or more seats. The difference being Democrats are going to be electing 
a lot of moderates like slash centrist type candidates. And um, those people, especially the ones that are coming from districts that President Trump performed well in, they're going to be under a lot of pressure to try to keep a moderate voter voting record. So if Republican Democrats have a very small majority, they're going to have a hard time getting a lot of things done because there's going to be a group of representatives that um, are going to feel like they have to answer to their electorate. And in two years, those people know that they're going to be up for re-election with President Trump on the ballot, not a generic Republican. And um, the first re-election campaign is usually the most vulnerable for House members. So how big that majority is for the Democrats um, is going to matter a lot. So definitely don't turn off the television if uh, it's an early night in terms of uh, declaring who's going to have control of the House, because how far Democrats are able to extend that majority is going to have um, major repercussions um, for the two years ahead. Now, looking at the breakdown, I break down the, um, the, the House target seats for Democrats into three groups. So the first group are seats where Republicans are sitting in districts that Hillary Clinton won. Um, a lot of these are affluent suburbs. Not all of them are, though. Um, but just a couple examples. We have Arizona 2nd outside of Phoenix, California 49. That's uh, Daryl Ice's uh, um, district who's retiring. Colorado 6th, that's um, uh, Mike Kaufman, who's uh, outside of Denver, very affluent suburb. Um, there's an affluent suburb outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota 3rd, um, Illinois 6, uh, which we talked about, Peter Roskam. Um, Kansas 3, which may sound surprising, but Omaha is uh, a more progressive city, and uh, President Obama actually uh, did win there. Uh, oh, actually, no, I apologize. Hillary Clinton won there by a point. Um, that has been traditionally a Republican stronghold in national years, um, but that looks like it's going to go Democrats, New Jersey 11 outside of uh, New York City, Virginia 10, of course, that's Barbara Comstock. Um, that may be the most overpolled district in the country because it's right outside of Washington, D.C., but um, even though Comstock is a very good moderate conservative, uh, moderate Republican with a very good brand for herself and well-liked um, all the polls there show that she's down by uh, double-digit points, so it looks like uh, she's going to be out. The other factor here is the Pennsylvania redistricting case. So there's four districts in Pennsylvania that will probably swing from Republican to Democrat just based on the redistricting formula and um, putting those districts into um, into um, into uh, sections of the state that are more Democratic-leaning. So there's probably four pickups there. There's actually one pickup for um, for the Republicans as well. So it looks like it'll be at least a three or four net seat gain as a whole as a result of the um, as a report of the uh, as a result of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court redistricting decision. And um, there's also uh, uh, there's also Texas uh, seven and Texas thirty two. That's John Culberson and uh, Pete Sessions uh, districts outside of Dallas and outside of Houston, which um, which Hillary Clinton narrowly won. Again, these are all places that have a long, um, for the most part, a long um, ancestral Republican voting record that swung hard against President Trump, but elected their moderate uh, Republican um, representatives. Uh, they gave them the benefit of the doubt. And um, now those voters seem to be coming home with the mentality that 
they gave them the benefit of the doubt in 2016, but now they feel they need to elect Democrats to put a check on the president. And all those that I mentioned, um, very, very highly, highly probable that um, they're going to swing. Um, the next group are the President Trump districts that he won, which have a history of voting, very recent history of voting Democratic. So um that could be some of the cases President uh, Trump, President Obama won them twice, um, but not necessarily. And uh, some examples there, Iowa's first congressional district, um, Maine second. There's two in upstate New York, New York 22, New York 19. So a lot of the districts in this category tend to be more white working class um, with a 30 percentish college graduation rate. So not nearly as affluent, um, but, um, but middle class um, with more of an electorate favorable to President Trump. But remember that white working class vote, whites with no college degree, that was the big group that swung from um, swung sharply towards President Trump in 2016, and that caused a lot of wild swings like we saw in Iowa with districts going for Obama and then in some cases swinging double digits and going for Trump in very strong directions. New Jersey's threes on that list with uh, Tom MacArthur. There's also some suburbs in, um, in, in more conserv- socially conservative areas like uh, Illinois 14, uh, which is outside of Chicago, and Michigan 11, which is outside of Detroit. And those are areas that President Trump may have won by uh, a smaller margin, but that uh, have a history of voting Republican, um, maybe with an exception for a mild President Obama victory uh, mixed in there. So there's a a nice healthy mix in there. And um, these are the types of districts where control of the House is going to be decided. So when you're watching TV on Tuesday night, the first group, these Clinton districts, they're the ones that get all the attention. It's kind of the um, the obvious take that these affluent Clinton, Romney-Clinton suburbs are um, the first wave. But really, the balance of power is going to shift in these Trump-Obama districts. So if you start to see these districts falling um, and you hear that referenced uh, Obama-Trump districts, then that's probably a good sign that Democrats are going to take control of the House. Likewise, if Republicans are starting to pick off groups in um, the second group, I think they need to do really well in this second group. So, um, you know, I think they they probably have to win most of these uh, Obama-Trump type districts if they have any hope of holding on to the House. They also would need to pick off at least a couple of these uh, Romney-Clinton-type districts. So some possibilities where there might be a competitive race would be Leonard Lance in New Jersey 7, um, Pete Sessions and John Culberson. Those are probably going to be tight races. So if there's any upsets in there, then the hope is still alive that Republicans could make a run at keeping the House. Um, but that second group, that's the critically important one. They really can't afford to lose too many districts in there. If they're going to um, if they're going to keep control of the house, and that's why I really like that abstract fifteen group because it has a nice healthy mix of these Obama Trump working class districts and um, some of these more affluent districts that Hillary Clinton carried, and that's why I really felt pretty strongly the whole way that whoever wins the most um, in in that 
abstract 15 group is probably going to win control. And if it goes in too far in one direction or another, it probably means an overwhelming victory. Now, there is a third group that you should be aware of because um, my predictions call for 30 to 40 seat gain. And at 30 seats, um, I think Republicans are going to lose a lot of those districts that President Obama carried. But there is a third group that is vulnerable, and these are GOP strongholds, which do not have a recent track record of voting Democratic. So these um, are examples of Democrats making inroads into new territories, and that potentially has long-term implications because it's one thing if a district that at least has expressed an interest in voting democratically before swings back, but if you're making inroads into a new territory, um, that that's a whole different story in terms of overall performance. And there's a mix in this group as well. So we have Mia Love in Utah 4. We've talked about that race that that's really important for Democrat, uh, Republicans to hold on to um, because it is such a, a strong Republican-leaning district, but uh, she's up against the very popular moderate mayor of um, Salt Lake City. And um, as we've talked about in Utah, uh, President Trump has a huge problem with Mormons, very unpopular with that group. And it looks like Mia Love may lose her seat because of that. Uh, Dave Bratt in Virginia 7, we've talked about that district a lot. Um, that's the other thing in this group is we start to get into smaller um, city suburbs. So if you see Democrats starting to knock off, um, the media is going to refer to everything as suburban districts, but there's large city suburbs and there's small city suburbs. And um, a lot of the ones in that Clinton group, those were large city suburbs. So Denver, Minneapolis, New York, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Dallas, Houston. But when you start talking about a district outside of Richmond, Virginia, which is Dave Bratt and VA7, um, that is pretty significant if we're starting to see that contagion effect where Trump's uh, Trump's lack of popularity with college-educated voters, particularly women, starts to spread into these smaller suburbs. That's a problem. That's when we start to see Democrats um, racking up larger, uh, la larger uh, victories and possibly uh, closer to the uh, 40 end of that uh, 30 to 40 range. Um, there's uh, Kansas 2, which we talked about uh, on the Facebook page. Um, Kentucky 6, that's a really, really interesting one. Um, with Andy Barr is uh, up against Amy McGrath, who's a uh, former combat pilot. And, um, and that, that's just an example of Democrats doing a really good job running these great bio candidates that can present themselves as being uh, moderate and about the people and, ind and an independent voice in Washington. Um, that's a whole new template there if we see Kentucky 6 go down because um, Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky is not the kind of city that you're talking about when you're talking about a suburban revolt against Republicans or President Trump. That's a very strong area and um, that, that'll that be significant if uh, Andy Barr goes down in Kentucky because that could be a whole new template for Democrats how to run in uh, Republican stronghold territories. Uh, there's a couple small city suburbs in North Carolina that um, are potentially in play. So these are the kinds of places, if they start to go by the wayside, um, then we're talking about a pretty significant um, above historical average night for Democrats. The other thing that comes into play if these types of districts start to go is there probably are other districts around the country that either have not been polled or that we just haven't talked about where um, 
that that could be brought into play by the fact of uh, Republicans struggling in uh, small city suburbs. So um, Atlanta is not a small city suburb, but Georgia Six is um, an area that that uh, was not considered to be in play. There was a recent poll there that showed uh, Karen Handel, who won the special election uh, last year, down in that district by a couple of points. Uh, there's a district right next door, uh, Georgia 7, that um, I have not seen polled, but has been uh, a target of Democrats this year. Uh, there's a few districts in Florida that could be in play that we really don't have a great read on. Um, and there's a couple in Ohio as well. So as you can see, if the other party starts to make inroads into your territories, that's when things can landslide very quickly. And um, then you could be talking about going above 40 seats if that gets too severe. And you could just see how the, the math is really stacked against Republicans. We haven't even talked about a couple other things. There's wild cards in here. It looks like we're going to have a competitive race in Alaska um, where um, – where I believe 24-term incumbent uh, Don Young, I believe is his name, is up against uh, a political outsider uh, challenger there. There was a poll that showed that being a one-point one race. I saw a poll from a couple days ago that saw that had Montana as a tie, and that is entirely possible. We're going to talk about the Senate in just a minute, but if John Tester goes on to win his Senate race by three or four points— it's entirely possible that the House race will swing as well. Um, remember, Greg G. and Forte, Forte who won um, his special election. Um, remember, he had that incident where he assaulted uh, the reporter from The Guardian and he had to plead guilty for, um, plead guilty for simple assault. Um, I don't know that President Trump was really helping his case when he went to that rally and he said that, um, he thought that that incident was going to help Gianforte in Montana. Um, and maybe it did subconsciously, who knows, because of how polarizing things are with the media. But I can tell you this, um, voters do not like being stereotyped and they do not like electing candidates that stereotype their state or their local area. And um, I, I think that's a big reason why Roy Moore lost his race for Senate, besides all of his other issues, just the fact that there was a lot of people in Alabama that said, you know what, we don't want this guy coming in and stereotyping our entire state. And I don't know that Montanans are really thrilled about the fact that their representative uh, assaulted a, a reporter. And don't be shocked to see that race be really close and maybe even see Gianforte go down because uh, Montana and Alaska, they share the commonality that their voters are very independent minded. Um, Montana has a history of electing statewide Democrats. Alaska has a history of electing statewide independents. So um, nothing should be considered off the table there. There's also some scandal districts that we should talk about um, on the Republican side. Duncan Hunter in California's 50th. Um, he is has been indicted for campaign finance violation. Um, Chris Collins in New York 27, that's upstate New York outside of Buffalo. Um, he has been indicted for insider trading. And then, of course, we have uh, Steve King in Iowa's 4th, who um, recently found himself in hot water because he endorsed a candidate for the mayor's race in Toronto, who happens to be an open white nationalist. And, um, of course, King has his own history of making very racially charged comments 
Um, those are three, I call them scandal districts because they're in very safe Republican territory. Um, but I've seen polls that show that all three of those races could actually be tighter than um, than imagined. But if the Democrats have a really good night, don't be shocked to see one or two of those scandal uh, districts go down either. Um, but you can see that the, the map is really stacked against Republicans. Um, I mentioned on the page earlier that we're baking into our predictions here that Democrats are going to um, start the night basically with a 14-seat net gain. Those are seats that we are looking at the polls and looking at the um, the other political prog- prognosticators and their ratings and um, really just baking in that they'll probably start with 14-seat advantage. Republicans are going to pick up one seat in Pennsylvania due to the redistricting there. And uh, Minnesota's eighth looks like a strong pickup possibility. Um, Minnesota's first, which is in southern Minnesota, is a possible pickup for Republicans worth keeping an eye on. And there's a couple of wild cards in Nevada, but there's not many opportunities. And, and part of that is just because Republicans have done such a good job making inroads into Democratic territory over the years that they're just playing defense. Um, that combined with the national climate. So it's... There are not a lot of pickup opportunities. The only way for Republicans really to make a run at this um, is to win in some areas where they're not supposed to, these affluent suburbs. And um, I really think that the way that's going to happen is if there's just uh, a systemic polling error, meaning that um, for whatever reason, the polls were missing Trump supporters again. Um, I'm not very optimistic about that scenario. I do understand the possibility that that could happen in some of these more rural districts where there's a higher percentage of white voters without a college degree. Those people are hard to reach in the polls in general. But um, so, for instance, Maine second, um, the polls show that that race is tied. I wouldn't be shocked if um, if the Republican incumbent actually ended up winning by 10 points, because that's what happened with President Trump in 2016. Remember, he actually won that district. And won the electoral vote there because Maine splits their electoral votes. And um, the polls had him maybe within a point or so. He ended up winning by 10 because a lot of those people in those rural districts are hard to reach with polling or they just don't want to take them. That's not really the case in suburbs. People are more willing to sit on the phone and take polls. And um, generally, college-educated affluent voters are easier to reach. So it would be a real surprise if you saw a systemic polling error in the suburbs. But... It's possible, and um, that's why I put the odds at 15% that Republicans could still keep the House. Again, it certainly is possible. Um, it's not nothing. That's about the same as 538's model has it. Um, I think I think that's just important to keep in mind that um, if Republicans end up keeping the House, we're going to have another conversation about uh, the inaccuracy of polling and, and what's going on there and, and whether it's even worth paying attention to these polls. But I'll be really stunned if that happens, but I'll gladly tell you that I was wrong if that happens to be the case. But that's the way that this goes uh, the other direction and Republicans pull up a monumental upset. But now let's move over to the Senate. And um, that one's a little bit simpler to boil down. So um, there's really five races that you need to look at the entire night. Um, North Dakota is an easy pickup for Republicans. Um, Heidi Heitkamp is going to lose there. Uh, that seat just shifted um, into the, the wrong direction for her after the Kavanaugh vote. Kevin Kramer is going to be the next senator from North Dakota. So 
basically you can bake in one Republican pickup uh, from North Dakota. But the toss-up races are Missouri, Indiana, Florida, Nevada, and Arizona. And that means that the range, and not to totally hedge on this, but realistically, this is the range. Democrats could gain a seat, which means we would have a 50-50 split in the Senate with Mike Pence acting as the 51st vote, or Republicans could gain four seats. Um, that's the range taking into account those toss-up races. There's some mild op- upset op- possibilities for each party. Um, again, it wouldn't totally be an upset if Republicans um, swung the seat in Montana. I, I just think that um, John Tester up there has really branded himself well as uh, an independent voice. And uh, that, that concept of an independent voice, it matters more in some states than others. Some states um, may be Republican on paper, but they have a very independent spirit. Montana is one of them. Maine is another. Alaska we just talked about. So I will not be shocked at all if Tester ends up winning by three or four points and maybe taking the House race, uh, the House, uh, race with him. But we'll have to see about that. Um, I put Texas into that category for the Democrats because against all odds, even after the Kavanaugh vote and, and all that controversy, uh, Ted Cruz just has not been able to pull away there. I think he's heading for a five to six point victory. But if um, the upsets, if if the suburbs break harder against Cruz than what we think, um, if there are turnout issues in old Texas or rural Texas, um, if turnout among young voters around college campuses in Texas is off the charts, it's possible, but I would consider it to be an upset. Um, you know, I, I would peg it as uh, I would peg it as as a fourteen seed knocking off a three in the NCAA tournament. If that helps, Montana is more like a five and twelve. To be fair, then there's a couple of really long shots that um, are worth keeping an eye on, but I, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in them um, for Republicans. New Jersey. Um, and believe me, it pains me to say this. I wish that Bob Menendez um, was going to be sent packing. I, I think he's the most corrupt member of the Senate. But uh, just the partisan nature of New Jersey, the fact that President Trump is very unpopular in the state, uh, I think Menendez is probably going to win by close to double digits. Um, the possibility that that doesn't happen, I think it comes down to Democrats going into the polls and leaving that Senate line blank or um, – People just lying and saying they're going to vote for the Democrat, and then they go in and say, you know what, I just can't stomach it, and 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 they vote vote for a Republican Bob Hugin. But Menendez, as much as I hate to give him credit, has done a good job um, casting a cloud over Hugin. I don't think it's necessarily fair. A lot of it has to do with the very legitimate practices of him running a very important, very successful pharmaceutical company, which is a major employer in the Garden State. But um, they've been able to criticize him for um, uh, price hikes on cancer pro- uh, cancer drugs when he was CEO of Celgene. And I think that's put a lot of vote doubt into voters' mind where they kind of look at it as um, if you're a Democrat, a moderate Democrat, that both of them have their issues and they're going to vote for Menendez to put a check on Trump. So um, Menendez has, has done a good job. Um, dragging down Hugin's character, but uh, Hugin's favorable ratings are still pretty decent, and um, I think there is always a chance, might be 10%, something along those lines, that um, people just go there, they leave that spot blank, 
and um, Hugin pulls up the monumental upset, but I, I wouldn't consider it very likely. Uh, same thing would be in uh, Tennessee for Democrats. Um, that race seemed to have swung very sharply towards Marsha Blackburn after the Kavanaugh controversy. It's a very partisan, uh, very Republican state. And um, I think that just drove home the importance of having a Republican senator, even though um, it, even though um, the Democratic candidate there actually said that he would have voted for Kavanaugh, uh, Phil Bredesen, the former two-term governor, um, that doesn't seem to have mattered. Bredesen's run a great race. He's done a good job of marketing himself as um, having a track record which is very bipartisan, very independent, and wanting to go to Washington and just do right by Tennessee. I also think Marsha Blackburn has her uh, authenticity issues. Again, she's one of those firebrand conservative candidates that seems to automatically to, to default to the most um, conservative position. I think that rubs some voters the wrong way that are looking for more of an honest broker. But uh, the, the fact is, it, it's a very Republican state. Uh, President Trump there won there by 26, 27 points, I believe. And um, I just believe the, sh the sheer force of Republican makeup in that state is going to be enough to, uh, to drag Blackburn over the finish line. And um, if that wasn't enough, President Trump was actually in Tennessee tonight and um, trying to make sure that uh, turnout is juiced there among his base so I think Blackburn will be just fine, but it's an interesting race to keep an eye on. And uh, the other upset possibility for Republicans uh, would be in West Virginia, um, just based on the fact that it's a state that President Trump carried by 40 points. But uh, again, Senator Joe Manchin, one of the best retail politicians in America. He voted for Brett Kavanaugh, which is a very savvy move. And um, Virginia still has a register. West Virginia still has a registration advantage for Democrats. So it's a very ancestral Democratic state. A lot of uh, old um, coal miners, union type people that uh, used to be Democrats came over and have voted for Republican and are now very enthusiastic about Donald Trump. But they're still not opposed to voting for a Democrat, especially one that has a conservative voting record like Joe Manchin. So, um, I don't think that'll be in play, but each of those long shots I'd put around 10 to 15 percent just to give you perspective. But those are the races to look for if you want to look for some upset possibilities. Those would be more along the lines of a, a two seed beating a 15 seed or something like that. I, I'm not taking seriously the possibility that um, that that Republicans are going to make a run in Michigan or Ohio or Wisconsin um, I think they could have made a run in Michigan if they took that race a little bit more seriously, but they chose not to. They chose to uh, shore up their um, the toss-up races and, and some of the ones that are more on the fence, like like Tennessee. But, um, uh, but I think that's it for as far as realistic possibilities of upsets on Tuesday night. And now um, we're going to do uh, pick them. So I gave you my range. Um, again, political forecast should always be probabilistic in nature. So it should be framed in terms of this is what I think is going to happen. This is the odds. This is what has to happen for this not to come to fruition. That's a really smart forecast. But everyone has their pickums. They give you a hard number. And that's what they are going to go to. And that's what they're going to have pegged to their name. So that's exactly what I'm going to do right now. We're going to start in the Senate. And then I will give you my pickum number for the House. So in the Senate, 
Um, again, as I said, I think in North Dakota, uh, Kevin Kramer is going to be the next senator there. Uh, no surprise. In Missouri, um, this one could go either way. I think it's going to be turnout driven. A lot of it's going to depend on what happens in the Kansas City suburbs. But President Trump is making an election eve trip to rural southern Missouri tomorrow. Uh, so this is a high priority. And um, I think Josh Hawley is going to eke it out, but it's going to be close. We might be up all night counting votes there, but I'm going to go with Josh Hawley to pick up that seat for Republicans in Missouri. Indiana is interesting, and Indiana is weird, um, not in a negative way, but just in the fact that even though it's very Republican on paper, it has a very populist bent to it. So um, you remember the... Uh, former senator from Indiana, Evan Bayh, the Democrat. So they have a history of electing uh, statewide Democrats. Joe Donnelly is going for his second term there. And I, I think that Donnelly has built up enough credibility for himself, and he's branded himself as an economic populist. Remember, President Obama won Indiana in 2008, so it's not impossible for a Democrat to do there, even though President Trump won by uh, 20 points, I believe. Um, the key here is going to be in the northwest corner of the state, uh, Gary, Indiana. You can look, um, that's Lake County with Gary, Indiana. If um, the Democratic percentage is around 60%, that's good news for um the Republican challenger, Mike Braun, that's close to the percentage that uh, Hillary Clinton had in that district. It uh, has a pretty decent African-American makeup, so it's going to go uh, Democratic. It's just a question of how Democratic. If it's in the higher 60s, that's good news for Donnelly. That's closer to what Obama's margin was um, when he won the state in 2008. There's also uh, two districts, uh, two counties right next door. One is Porter County and the other right next door to it. Those actually um, were won by President Obama, and they were split in 2016. Remember, Evan Bayh was running against Todd Young in Indiana, and Bayh was considered a favorite for a while. He was trying to reclaim his Senate seat. And those districts, Porter and the one right next to it to its, um, to its east, and, and these are right next to Lake, Corner, uh, Lake County in the um, northwest corner of, of Indiana. Um, they split between Evan Bayh and Donald Trump. So look to those counties to see if they're blue or if they're red. Um, the other key component for Donnelly will be getting out the vote in the college areas. So uh, around Indiana, Indiana State University, and um, around Purdue University. So I think Donnelly's going to do it. I think he has enough credibility built up with the working class um, old school union type voters. Uh, Donnelly's one of these guys that's been calling for uh, tariffs to help manufacture American manufacturing and help us compete with China long before Donald Trump was on the scene. Uh, I think he has a lot of credibility with that base. And I think that young people are juiced to uh, come out and vote. And I think Donnelly's going to do just enough to win there by um, a point or two. In Florida, um, this is also a fascinating race. 
only because Florida has so many media markets and um, combined with a lot of rural areas in between. The I-4 corridor, which is known as Swing Country, which runs from Tampa to Orlando by Disney World, um, that's considered to be the, the swinging area of the state. I, I'm going to go with Rick Scott here, and this is against um, the polling averages, which have uh, Senator Bill Nelson up by a couple points. And I, I think... When you look on Tuesday night, I think Governor Scott is going to win in the Tampa region. Look to Hillsborough County, which is right on the Gulf Coast. That's a county that swung from President Obama to President Trump in 2016. And um, just look for his performance in general around Tampa region. That's where a lot of the true swing voters are left in the state of Florida. Um, also, and this is this is interesting. I haven't heard anyone else pick up on this, but I do think there's a possibility that Andrew Gillum, who I think is going to win the governor's race, brings out so many low propensity young people and uh, black voters, people that don't typically vote in midterm elections. I think he might bring out so many of those people that he could actually tilt the Senate race to Scott because what happens is when you bring out low propensity voters and they have to decide between the sitting governor who they know and um, Florida has an excellent economy right now and Scott has an excellent track record on his recover on um, his job responding to hurricanes, which is a big deal in Florida. I, I believe they've had four or five hurricanes uh strike that state while he's been governor and he's gotten excellent um, grades for his response to all of them. Um, sometimes they're going to, they're, they're going to break for the governor just simply because they know who he is. And Bill Nelson is, has been Senator for a long time in Florida, but uh, he's very nondescript. Um, a lot of people probably don't even know his name to be honest, or didn't know his name before this race. And um, he, he's, a good senator, moderate, um, but he's not somebody that elicits a lot of enthusiasm. And because of that, I think we're going to get a split result. We're going to see uh, Gilliam win by a point, and we're going to see Governor Rick Scott swing that seat for the Republicans by a point. And when you're looking at the returns, look at the Florida counties that have a high percentage of black voters and compare Scott's returns to um, governor or, or uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate uh, Ron DeSantis and see if Scott is overperforming DeSantis's numbers. Uh, the counties to look at would be Broward County, um, that's just north of Miami, Duval County, that's um, the county which contains Jacksonville, and um, by Tallahassee. I don't recall the name of the county there, but those are the areas of the state that have a high percentage of black voters, at least 30 percent plus. And I'm really wondering if we're going to see a bit of a departure between um, the Republican numbers on the Senate and gubernatorial ticket just because Rick Scott has that name ID and um, maybe voters have a positive opinion of him and they just they're not really too sure what to think of Bill Nelson in Nevada. Um, I think that Jackie Rosen is going to swing that seat for the Democrats. And uh, I've been talking about this a lot, but there's a massive union turnout operation in Nevada, which consistently has resulted in Democrats overperforming their poll numbers. In 2016, 
President Trump was leading um, the averages by about a point. Hillary Clinton ended up winning by three points. Um, there was a race in 2010 where Harry Reid was supposed to lose to uh, Tea Party sweetheart uh, Sharon Engel by mid-single digits, and he ended up winning and overperforming his numbers by over well over 10 points. Um, and that's just because these unions are very good at getting their employees to the polls and a lot of them are not even registered in the polls because they either don't speak um, English. Um, there's a lot of Spanish primary language residents in um, in Nevada. And um, a lot of them work off hours and just are not captured in these polls. So that dynamic has uh, produced a situation where Democrats consistently overperform their poll numbers. And I really thought that Dean Heller would need a three or four point lead um, to be in good shape in Nevada. So even though the polls have been pretty good for Heller and they haven't been uh, dramatically in Jackie Rosen's direction, I just think the turnout operation is going to take over and we're going to see Jackie Rosen uh, win by three or four points in Nevada. And in Arizona, another fascinating race all about turnout. I'm going to go with Kirsten Cinema because she's defied expectations to this point. Um, she was always a little bit too liberal for Arizona, in my opinion. Um, then all that information came out about um, her liberal activism years ago. But um, I think what's happening is you're just seeing how strong the poll is against President Trump in these suburbs. So in Maricopa County, which consists of Phoenix and the surrounding suburbs, that's probably where about half, maybe even a little bit more than that of the vote is going to come from. President Trump won there by three points in 2016. I think that cinema is going to do pretty well in Maricopa County. And I just don't think that Martha McSally is going to be able to make up the margin in the rest of the state. The other thing is there definitely is a never Trump Republican type vote there. And um, if cinema is able to peel off six or seven percent of Republicans that um, that just are not fans of President Trump. These are the types of people that voted for Romney in 2012, voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. There were a lot of them in the Maricopa County area. And um, I think there could be just enough of those to swing the race in favor of cinema. Um, I'll say that she'll win by a point, point and a half. So that would bring our grand total for the Senate to Democrats um, holding 48 seats, Republicans holding 52, meaning there would be a net seat gain of one for the Republicans, and the um, landscape of the Senate would be very much the same as it is today. But um, again, it could go pretty far in either direction, but if you're asking me to put a number on it, I'll go with Republicans 42, Democrats 40, uh, Dem uh, Republicans 52, Republicans 52, Democrats 48, sorry, too many numbers here, um, for the Senate in 2019. And um, now for the the uh, pick'em number in the House, I'm going to go with Democrats picking up 37 seats and winning the popular vote by eight percentage points. And um, in the abstract 15 districts, I'm going to say that Democrats are going to pick up 11 of the 15, which would be a consistent of uh, what I th thought would be a pickup in the high 30s under those circumstances. And um, that's going to be because of their performance in the affluent suburbs, as well as 
uh, Obama-Trump country and um, possibly making some inroads into uh, Republican, historically Republican districts in um, some small city suburban areas. So that's it. I will definitely want to hear from all of you what your predictions are for the House and the Senate. Do you think I'm far off or do you agree with what I have to say? And the best thing is on Wednesday, we'll see how these hold up. And uh, I am going to post them on the Facebook page so they'll be out there documented and uh, we can see how I did. And uh, before we sign off here for episode number seven on election day eve, eve, um, I just want to implore everybody who's listening to go out and vote, regardless of whether you're going to vote for a Democrat or Republican or independent, there is no such thing as a wasted vote. And um, how I can say that is because margins matter. And if people go out and vote and it results in a, um, a smaller margin for Democrats in the, um, in the House, that's going to change the dynamic of the next Congress. Likewise, even your own local races, if somebody wins by a three or four point margin, that's going to change how they feel they can govern. So this is really important. The tighter you can make races, even if you're go- you're the side you're going to vote for is going to lose, you're putting pressure on the newly elected person to be responsive to the electorate. So there is no such thing as a wasted vote. Absolutely not. Um, Make sure to look at your ballots, familiarize yourself with your state and your local races as well. Those are very important. And um, oftentimes local races, town council, school board, things like that, those can be swung by 10 or 15 votes. So absolutely every vote counts. Make sure you figure out how you're going to get to your polling location. There's plenty of resources online if you need to know where your polling location is and um, how you're going to get there and make accommodations with work and all that. So that's it for episode number seven of the Political Abstract podcast. I hope you've enjoyed our run up to uh, Election Day 2018 and all the analysis. And uh, I will look forward to talking to you after the election when we'll find out which parties are going to be in control of Congress in 2019 and what the political landscape looks like. Take care. Go out and vote, and I will talk to everybody later on.